0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 28th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Hey, my first guest today is Nathan Taxel of Orange County Parks. An interpreter at the Upper Newport Bay Nature Preserve, who will lead us around this special habitat, filling our holiday souls with the wonders of nature. And in the second segment, near near the end, Linda Beale, co-founder of the Amy Beal Foundation, returns onto this show to reflect on her family's connections with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. We'll be right back. Please, please. Welcome back to the show. In this segment, my guest is Nathan Taxel. I met him earlier this month, December 6th, when the most recent king tides were rolling in. And I uh, I chose the natural domain of Upper Newport Bay versus what I called it destruction porn views of fabulously expensive coastal residences getting inundated with salt water. So there was Nathan leading a, a lovely group of people to watch what happens in the upper Newport Bay Preserve area when the tides raise upward of seven feet. So back to Nathan's bio, he was currently a resource specialist with the Orange County Parks. Previously, he worked at the Ocean Institute, the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. He's, Nathan served on the board of the California Association of Environmental and Outdoor Education and previously on the Student Conservation Association. He was awarded the 2017 American Association of Environmental and Outdoor Education, Educator of the Year Award. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science and Environmental Studies at Hobart and William Smith Colleges and his Master's in Park Resource Management at Slippery Rock University of Pennsylvania. He comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Nathan Taxel.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, I would also add, uh, in addition to my my role with Orange County Parks, I'm also an associate faculty member in the Environmental Studies Department at Saddleback College.
0: Oh, thank you for that. So that's the heft he brings to interpreting, posting, solidifying our natural domain literacy in the ways that we were really entreated to, as I was saying, December 6th. So let's start, Nathan, with what does a visitor gain? We're gonna we'll get an increasingly deeper levels of involvement, but let's say people are thinking about what they're gonna do over some time off they have from their Zoom sessions and working remotely between the Christmas and the New Year's holidays What does a visitor gain from stopping by the interpretive center?
1: Sure, absolutely. And and I, I would begin by saying that no matter where you are, in Orange County. There are fabulous county parks nearby. We have facilities all over the county from the foothills out to the coast. And so wherever you are, there's going to be a county park relatively nearby and they're going to have great resources for recreation and for education. Um, so wherever you are, there's there's stuff close by. But if you feel like making a trip to Upper Newport Bay Nature Preserve in, in Newport Beach, it's kind of a unique place. It's uh, one of California's last coastal salt marshes or estuaries. So it's where fresh water and salt water meet. And you have a very unique ecosystem there. One that I would describe as ecologically extreme. And what that means is that organisms, uh, plants and animals have to be uniquely adapted to survive and thrive in that environment and have tools that organisms in other environments don't have. Because, Every day at the bay, we have a a tidal influx and outflow, a low tide and a high tide. Um, And with that low tide and high tide comes changes in water chemistry. So everything that lives out on the marsh has to be able to survive being completely dry, being completely submerged, and having various levels of fresh and salt water all throughout a single 24-hour cycle. And that goes on continuously every day of the year. Uh, for all time. And and so you have tons of unique organisms there that, that you won't find anywhere else. And so it's uh, a really special place for that reason. And in the wintertime in particular, um, we are uh, fortunate to have tens of thousands of migratory birds that travel from as far north as the Arctic Circle to spend the winter at Upper Newport Bay. I mean, you know, Newport Port Bay, Arctic Circle, who wouldn't want to spend the, the winter down here?
0: Yeah, right. Well, and also, there is the kind of, they're cohabiting with other organisms. Doesn't that make that even more special? They have to sort of adjust to uh, other adapted organis- organisms in that area. And that, that and it changes constantly because of all those conditions that you just mentioned.
1: Absolutely. So, the the web of life, the the functions of the ecosystem, and the way that that organisms have to work together or compete uh, with one another is on full display there uh, at at any given time in a way that that may not be as easy to see in other parts of of Orange County or or the Southwest.
0: So, during these holidays, are there different hours, or what people can? I'll put up the link for. The Upper Newport Bay Natural Preserve, there. But so that there will be chances that we people can meet you or your colleagues there.
1: Absolutely. So the, the park itself is open from sunup to sundown, 365 days a year. So the park is never closed during the daylight hours. The interpretive center, the Peter and Mary Muth Interpretive Center, which is located at Upper Newport Bay Nature Preserve, is open uh, typically Tuesday through sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, we will be closed on christmas day and new year's day but we're open christmas eve we're open new year's eve um, and all the days in between so yeah 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. tuesday through sunday
0: do the displays change or are they pretty pretty constant there
1: so they, they do change over time. Um, so we, we have a number of temporary exhibits throughout the building that that change out at probably quarterly. Okay. And then a number of built displays that that do uh, kind of stay there more permanently, just like uh, any other museum.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. And my guest is Nathan Taxel. He's a resource specialist at Orange County Parks and interpreter extraordinaire at the Upper Newport Bay Nature Preserve. So I happen to know a person who's a docent at the La Jolla Torrey Pine Preserve. And and she's always talking about, she really gets her hackles up when people aren't staying on the trail and there are other kinds of sort of things they do. So could you talk about what you what good practices you wanna make sure people honor when they're there visiting the whole preserve? I-
1: Absolutely. And, and, and everything that I'll talk about is, is going to be both for, for your safety, for your pet safety, and also to preserve the, the habitat and the ecosystem. Um, as I mentioned, uh, salt marshes are, uh, a very rare habitat here in California. There's only about 5% left of what would have been here before European colonization of this region. And, and so it's it's a very important ecosystem to preserve. And so by following a few simple rules and practices, we're gonna all do our part to make sure that uh, it gets to stay here and stay accessible for future generations. And so the things that I think are most important are staying on the, the designated trail. And you know, with our our desert-like ecosystem, determining what is and is not a trail can be really tricky. And so, what I always tell people is that uh, at Upper Newport Bay, in particular, our trails are very, very wide. So, if you're looking at an open area, trying to figure out if you're a- allowed to go there or not, if it's not large enough to drive a, a car through. Then it's it's not a place that that uh, typically you'd be allowed to go. So look for those big, wide open, flat, smooth areas, and that those are our trails. And follow the signs. Um, that's most important. Leashing pets is also really, really important. You know, we have a lot of rare birds, endangered species. We also have coyotes and bobcats and things like that. And so both for for the pet safety as well as for the habitat, keeping those dogs on that six-foot leash is extremely important. And that's California state law. Um, Other than that, you know, we want people to come out into the parks and enjoy them and experience all this amazing stuff that we have to, to see and to do. And the one last thing is we do have uh, some multi-use trails where you're going to have cyclists, uh, equestrians, people riding horses, as well as walkers and hikers all using the same area. So kind of being aware of everything that's that's going on around you and, and know that uh, everyone needs to yield to the equestrians. The, the horses get the, the right of way if there's a, a narrow place. Um, and that's that's basic uh, trail safety no matter where you are in, here in Orange county and elsewhere that um, you know horses are beautiful animals and, and really great fun for for the people that that work with them but they can be startled uh, somewhat easily and uh, can become quite hazardous uh, for people around them if they do get startled so yielding to those equestrians is really important
0: I want to really drive home the point about staying on the paths because the from a resource management point of view, there's additional resources necessary. If people beat down some plants if they don't stay on the path. And that's those are resources that t- get taken away from other badly needed projects.
1: Absolutely. I think soil compaction is, is especially in our environment here, because it's so dry, is really a critical issue. And so our organic layer of soil, the part that actually provides the the nutrients for plants to grow is very very thin. And when it gets compacted, it makes it much harder for seeds to grow and for plants roots to spread. So even a few people walking on an area can make it significantly harder for those those organisms to thrive. Um, also at Upper Newport Bay, we're actively involved in habitat restoration. So when you park in our parking lot and look out towards the water, you're going to see an area where there's lots of little pink flags. And those are plants that we planted. We're working slowly, but diligently to introduce or reintroduce plants that would have been here pre-colonization and remove the ones uh, that were unintentionally brought by those uh, early Europeans to arrive here. And so it's a, you know, decades long project. Um, but we work on it every month um, with public volunteers on, on a, an event that's called the Second Sunday Restoration, which if you'd love to come out and help us out with, we could uh, you're more than welcome to join us. And you can find it on the park calendar on ocparks.com. But point being, people walking in those areas uh, where we're working on restoration makes that job exponentially harder because of that soil compaction.
0: Well, you know where I'm going next, Nathan, is you can deputize us not we're not gonna wear your badge, but what is a very effective diplomatic way for someone, a lay person, to approach someone who is defiling the habitat? What are your best expressions that we could use and discourage bad campers' actions?
1: That's a really really tough one. Um, We would not uh, encourage people uh, to approach, Strangers and try and get them to change their behavior. Um, I, I think that in in general, um, people are not going to respond well to someone they don't know who's not not in a position of a, of authority telling them to do something different. Unfortunately, I think that if you can strike up a conversation. It's always there's always great opportunities to, to educate people um, and share your knowledge about a place and, and why it's important or why it's fragile. But if you say, hey, you don't do that. I, I think that's never really going to gonna go well. So my recommendation would be is um, if you're out in a park um, and you see someone doing something that is destructive or that they're not supposed to do, uh, let park staff know we, we are trained to handle it. Um, we go through extensive training in, in dealing with these kinds of situations. And then I wouldn't suggest that a, a lay person ever try and do that without that training and background so um, when you're with your friends and your family people that you know it's a great time to talk about this kind of stuff when you're out with your kids especially parents uh, teaching their kids appropriate ways to uh, to be in public spaces and public land is really really important so I'd focus on the people that you know the people in your group and make sure that everyone is uh, not just doing the right thing, but understanding why it's important and how each one of us has a a role in in protecting these amazing resources we have and, and amazing natural places we have here in Orange County, and why why it's so important to do that. But if you see strangers around, you know, let staff know. OC Parks is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation. We have staff on duty pretty much all the time with the exception of, of, you know, the middle of the night. But um, if you're in a park during daylight hours when the park is open, there's going to be staff on duty.
0: Well, that was really helpful. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. And my guest in this segment is Nathan Taxel. He's a resource specialist at Orange County Parks and interpreter. Extraordinaire, as you can hear at the upper Newport Bay nature preserve. So let's talk about then not just the casual visitor, but the data, the resource management geeks that are possibly contributing some vital data in the crowdsourcing opportunities. We'll get to the King Thai project later, but in general, how much is Orange County Parks relying on the crowdsourcing potential to help you out
1: yeah you know we we have a lot of different things that are are going on and um definitely look to a number of different sort of citizen science projects to help us know what's going on in in the field you know we have big parks facilities all over the county and and not a lot of uh Comparatively, not a lot of staff in the field on, on being able to focus on, on this sort of stuff. So for me personally, there are a couple of things that I use and that I look to to see what other people are observing in our parks. One is a website and application called iNaturalist. Um, it's a really fun program that you use as an app on the phone or can access as a website on a computer where it's basically social media meets, uh, citizen science and wildlife observation. So you take photos of living organisms, you post them, the algorithm that's built into the application can helps identify it. And then it's sort of crowdsourced identification. And, uh, uh, once the, the, the observation is identified, um, Enters a data set that's called Research Grade, and it's a worldwide data set that has been and continues to be used in lots of published, peer-reviewed scientific journals and papers. Um, so it's a collection of biological data with you know millions of different uh, data points at this at this point that's being used for scientific research all over the world. The way that I use it as an OC Parks resource manager is that it turns every uh, observer of nature in our parks into uh, another set of eyes and ears for me. So I have have it set up so that whenever someone observes an organism in the areas that I'm involved with, I get a notification. And that really helps me know what kinds of interesting organisms are in, in the parks. Um, it comes with pictures and, and it, it has some social networking features that are, are fun if you're into that sort of thing. And um, it's free. I can't recommend it enough. I, I really enjoy using it. And it's a way, especially for, for young people who are very used to engaging in the world and uh, around them through technology it sort of meets them halfway and is an opportunity to use those devices that we're carrying around uh, in a way that is, is both educational and beneficial. Uh, Other than that, another great uh, project and, and opportunity for anyone to contribute information that, that will help me do my job is the application. It's another mobile based app called eBird. eBird is, is, are part of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, um, which is one of the biggest, most prominent universities studying birds and bird activity in in North America, if not in the world. And um, their eBird program allows anyone to log the birds that they observe, both in uh, diversity and in quantity. Uh, That gets posted, it gets reviewed uh, by dedicated volunteers um, to make sure that the data is accurate and there's nothing, you know, completely out of the ordinary there. And then we uh, can that's data that, that land managers like myself can access to see what's around and look at trends over time. Because um, again, looking at who's here today is interesting, but looking at who's been here over the last five to 10 years is much more scientifically useful. Uh, the other thing that comes out of that, that eBird program is that when unusual birds are identified and uh, submitted through that application. There's a, a listserv by region. So here it's the Orange County Rare Bird Alert listserv. You can sign up to get an email Again, daily about what unusual and interesting and and non typical birds are around, and that again really helps me as a resource manager and as a as an avid bird watcher and bird enthusiast. I get really excited about those. And uh, for example,
0: yes, I was uh, going to ask for some some sensational highlights in the last yeah,
1: while. So, so the big thing we have going on right now with the, with a rare bird is hanging out in the coastal area of Orange County around uh, Upper Newport Bay and places like Bosa Chica Ecological Reserve and San Joaquin Wildlife Preserve. We have a, juvenile or immature bald eagle and it's uh been around for a couple weeks already spent most of last week at upper newport bay nature preserve and uh is really really exciting uh as i'm sure most of your listeners know uh we used to have lots and lots of bald eagles in north america that were uh, nearly killed off by the pesticide ddt and fortunately, it's a great conservation success story. It's a story I love telling because it it shows how if we identify a problem, we can actually solve it, which doesn't always seem as uh, as easy to do these days. But um, so the, the pesticide DDT was identified as what was causing eagles and other uh, birds of prey that dying primarily on fish to die off and uh, the chemical was banned and eagles were bred in captivity across the the country and, and our, their population has stabilized and is growing rapidly, which is really exciting both because they're a beautiful majestic bird. And they're also, you know, our, our nation's uh, symbol or mascot. So it has some value there. And of course, eagles uh, are extremely important to many of our indigenous communities across the country. So, so by bringing them back, we're helping those uh, cultures and, and uh, groups survive and thrive as well. And, and so having one in, on the coastal area is very exciting. Having one hang out for, for a while is very exciting and, you know, indicates that maybe in the future, a few years down the line, we might get an eagle nesting in the coastal part of Orange County, which would be amazing.
0: So that's where the crowdsourcing is really helpful. So you're getting right. lots of data points for sighting this juvenile bald eagle. And yeah, then exactly. if it drops totally. off, you go, ooh, it's found uh, timeshares further north, right. south, east, or pro- not west necessarily. Maybe west. Yeah, could be. Catalina.
1: Well, and anything is possible. Yeah, The, the, the Channel Islands actually have a very, very robust population of bald eagles but interestingly enough this bird we don't think came from there um, because it's not banded or tagged and uh the the folks with with the various uh resource management agencies out on the island national park service and the catalina island conservancy do a really great job banding and tagging almost all of or as far as i know all of the eaglets that are, are hatched out there. So we know it didn't come from there, but because it's not banded or tagged, we don't know where it came from. So it's kind of a fun mystery.
0: Okay, well, yeah, and you, that answers my question I was gonna ask is this guy, they're, they're all subject to getting banded because because you it's the need to know. And, and, and just you're the one to ask is, how annoying is that for the animal to be banded? I'm, I'm not talking about like whatever treatment you have to do to, I, to, to mobilize it, to immobilize it. But so, I mean, do these bands, do the the animals grow around? Is it, do they keep trying to like, are they annoyed by having that band on? I've always wondered that, Nathan.
1: You know, I don't think so. I, you know, I I, I can't speak for, for the animals and, and they <laughs> speak for themselves. So it I, I don't want to, you know, kind of speak in definite terms, but it certainly doesn't seem like it. I've observed... A lot of banded birds. Um, I've actually done some bird banding with Star Ranch, the the Audubon Society on the, in the foothills here in Orange County, and the banding is done in a way to be minimally invasive. The, the The bands themselves are extremely light. They're put on the legs in a way so that they won't inhibit movement, no matter you know even if the bird grows. They um, like expand. The, well, they're put on large enough. Um, like if you're putting it on a small bird, it is loose so that that doesn't inhibit movement in in the future. And the people that do it are, you know, real professionals. I've observed it. I haven't, you know, I'm not trained to do it myself, but the the fact is um, if it does cause some minor annoyance or discomfort to the animals, they don't show it. They don't pick at them. They don't claw at them. You don't see them trying to get them off. And the information we get about their behavior, their movements, how far they travel, where they come from, where they're going is extremely important for for bird conservation. So I I think the the benefits definitely outweigh any potential downsides or drawbacks. And I I can say that from work or from information that's gathered through the banding program, I'm sure there are lots more birds today than there would be without it.
0: Okay. Uh, I get that cost benefit. Thank you. So you mentioned... The iNaturalist app, the eBird app, are, are there any more that we should find out about? And tell us how long have these have been in existence. How long have you had data collected from these apps?
1: It's um, a good question. And, and I honestly, I don't know. I know that eBird, um, the program of counting and identifying birds predates the digital technology. So people have been submitting reports of bird observations to the Cornell lab for a very, very long time. Like
0: generations,
1: I mean, maybe. Yeah, I, I'm sure, but I, I don't know exactly how long. And iNaturalist, uh, again, I, it's been around quite a while. I used it for the first time probably around 2012, 2013, but it's been around longer than that. And, and I wouldn't speculate exactly when it, it started, but that came with the advent of digital technology and mobile phones and things like that. So it was, it's at least, it's, you know, from the last 20 years, I'd say.
0: Well, that's just wild. Are there any more apps I should ask you about besides those two?
1: Um, I'm sure there are. One that, that people may want to use is called Seek. It's also part of, from iNaturalist, but it, it doesn't have the social networking or data collection feature. So if you want to have something on your phone where you can look at a plant or an animal through the camera and get an idea of what it might be, the app Seek does that. And there was an app at Mover we at the King Tides that you were able to
0: get the bird song identified. Which yes. one is, is that a separate uh, one?
1: So yeah, there, there's a few different ones for, for recording bird songs and, uh, uh kind of helping identify them um they're none of them they're they're all sort of crowdsourced so the more people that use them the better they're gonna get and and so i I don't have one that i i would feel comfortable kind of shouting out to the, the the listeners here because a lot of them cost money and have variable rates of actual success in terms of identifying bird calls. But that application, iNaturalist, you can upload a recording from your phone. So every phone, phone, well, most smartphones have a voice recorder app built in. You just record the bird song on that that app, upload it to iNaturalist, and and they will be able to provide you with a, a better identification than any of the other applications that I'm aware of. Uh, one other one that's uh, not so much citizen science, but really great Uh, for people to use that works really well and and to learn more about it and engage with the world around them is one called uh, Google sky. Um, It's for Android. Uh, There's not an iPhone version. iPhone has a a version that's called sky map that I don't like as much um, mostly because you have to pay for some premium features that make it much more effective, but Google sky on your Android phone, is a really fantastic app. And and you basically you point the screen up at this, the stars or the sky and it tells you what you're looking at, you know, what what the names of the stars are, the planets, any other interesting objects that are, are visible. And, and that's super cool and really useful. And when I'm doing evening programs, I still rely on on that. Even though I've I, you know, I'm a fairly experienced uh, sky watcher myself. It's nice to have that, you know, confirmation of what's what.
0: Well, in the time we have left, there's a lot to still cover. I just would like to know, you talk about the data that's getting collected. Can you speak, Nathan, to trends that are observable at the center, trends that you're getting from the crowdsourcing from beyond the center about the the center's domain? What can you tell us about that, those trends?
1: Hmm. that's that's a that's a good one um you know for for the for the short term, we're we're all looking for signs that this prolonged period of drought we've been in is ending and last week's weather and the weather that's uh, on the forecast as we're recording this are very promising you know we, we had a uh, our biggest storm in what I think about two years not too long ago and there's more rain coming and and so that that's very exciting. So we're, you know, to see uh, potential, you know, growth of plants and wildflowers that we haven't seen in a couple seasons. And, you know, so if this small isolated patch of weather trends towards, you know, a, a wetter winter this year, then that's going to be really exciting. And as uh, disruptive as the rain may end up being to many of, of your listeners' holiday plans, Psychologically speaking, we really need it, and and it's exciting to see it coming. Um, in terms of longer term trends, you know, it's it's tough because from a a scientific perspective, individual observations are really hard to correlate with these sort of long term longitudinal things that that the researchers look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I would point your listeners to is the studies that that came out last year that uh, showed nationwide bird populations are in decline for a whole variety of factors, no one individual thing. That's something that if, if you talk to people that have lived or been around Upper Newport Bay for decades, they will often mention that there are fewer birds to be seen now than there used to be. I've only worked at Upper Newport Bay for three years. I can say categorically... I have made no observations that correlate with that, but I certainly believe the folks that have lived here for a long time to say that, you know, make compared to maybe 40, 50 years ago, there are less birds to see.
0: Well, that's not surprising and it's it's sobering where if there is a force of a trend that's that's just in decline, it takes a lot of vision and resources to redirect something that's unfolding like that. It's daunting. And we should be daunted,
1: shouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that when it comes to habitats and ecosystems and and the environment, it's it's pretty difficult to see what kinds of things we can do as individuals to make a difference. But I will say that, for instance, at Upper Newport Bay, part of the reason we do our habitat restoration program is preserving breeding grounds for an endangered bird called a California gnat catcher. It's a small gray bird, very undistinct. You know, not no bright colors, no flashy patterns, but they live around coastal salt marshes. And because we don't have that many coastal salt marshes left, there aren't many of these birds left. But by doing the planting we're doing, we're creating more habitat for them to nest in. And the population of that bird locally is increasing. They're responding to the efforts to create more habitat. You know, you, if you only ever visited up for Newport Bay, you'd never know they were endangered because, uh, they have a fairly distinctive call, it sounds like a kitten ewing, and a walk from our parking lot to the interpretive center most mornings will give you the opportunity to hear this bird calling. And, and, that's and
0: we the- have them locally, and uh, it's the preserve that's an offset for the density of the UC Irvine faculty housing. We do have a preserve where gnat catchers and cactus wrens are both a part of that habitat. So it's our uh, little, our little that- postage stamp protection.
1: Yeah, they, there are places for them to survive. And, and I think that by restoring the habitat we have left, by giving animals a opportunity to survive and thrive, can make a difference in some of these longer term, broader trends and make sure that our, our children and our grandchildren all have the opportunity to experience these wonderful natural settings.
0: Well, let's make the last subject for this conversation I'm enjoying so much, Nathan, is the California King Tides project. And I understand the next King Tides washing up our way is, I believe, January the 2nd and 3rd of this next year.
1: That is correct. We do have a highest high tide of the year coming up. And so King Tides are really interesting. King Tides are our highest high tides of the year. But to be clear, A king tide is not a scientific designation. It's just the way we describe these winter tides that come in. So there's not like a particular level or particular height that a tide has to get you to be classified as a king tide or anything like that. They're just during full moons and new moons in the winter months when uh, we experience the strongest... Gravitational pull from the, the the sun and the moon that give us this tidal effect, and we get the highest highs and lowest lows of the year. And and so areas that are not typically affected by a standard high tide get water coming up on, onto them. So, for instance, we have a section of trail at Upper Newport Bay that that's very very wet and muddy when it normally yeah. isn't because we're getting these really really high tides.
0: So people can. Pull up the California King Tide Project. It's on the California Coastal Commission website.
1: I I believe so, yes.
0: So I was asking you on that event on December 6th, I believe, where I'm, yeah, December 6th, on a Sunday, whether you noticed anything going on where the inundation of these tides created, it sort of washed out some of the regular habitat for waterfowl and so it sort of compressed different species onto each other's uh, where they're hanging out that day so i i was asking and i'll bring it, that conversation into this interview is how did you notice that the animals that were not supposed to be they're not naturally on top of each other what was their behavior what came to you
1: so, so what we see during the, the really high tides is birds in particular out on the marsh at Upper Newport Bay that are normally quite elusive and spread out seem to, to spend more time in areas where they're easier to, to view and closer to one another. They're looking for those those safe areas that maybe where the water isn't moving as much, where there's food to eat. And when that water level comes up, to a a height that it doesn't normally reach, that kind of pushes all these animals up and together. And and so the the bird watching at Upper Newport Bay on the highest tides can be very, very good because animals that are normally staying hidden or out of view or far away from shore end up being much closer.
0: Well, as you noticed at that particular morning is that there's a little scramble that some of the fowl, they are they're a little rattled by what they consider an animal is a predator, but you said that that is not a predator of that species. They, they shouldn't be, but they are reacting like they're near a predator.
1: That was of yeah. cool. Something that I that, uh, was actually a similar phenomenon. I was observing with the, the bald eagle uh, over last weekend where bald, bald eagles eat fish and they would be much happier to scavenge a fish or steal it from another bird than actually hunting it themselves. And yet when the eagle flies into the marsh and lands, all of the ducks and shorebirds and pelicans that are normally hanging out, there, they kind of all get riled up and appear to like, it's a, this amazing reaction. It, I would It's akin to an explosion. You know, the eagle comes in and then, you know, all these other birds kind of explode outward in a way that makes it very clear something kind of uh, startled them. And, and the eagle wants nothing to do with the ducks. The eagle isn't competing with the ducks for food. It's not going to eat the ducks. Um, you know, they, they can coexist just fine. And yet this presence of a large predator in their midst definitely seems to make all the other birds less comfortable. And then there was a, on Sunday morning, I was looking over the the bay trying to find the eagle uh, with a spotting scope. And what cued me into that it was around was this this sort of seemingly spontaneous rise in all the the birds in an area and and then lo and behold the eagle had just landed there.
0: Okay so that's how we can find it. Well this just begs a little a smaller question but I'm very curious now. So do birds, what sense are they using to experience that higher up the food chain bird coming? Is, is it like a shock wave of their wing action? Do they smell it? Do they see it? Or do they have a combination of those senses that perceive that animal coming into the habitat?
1: You know, I, I don't know for sure, but my, my guess is that it's gonna be uh, their sense of sight and, and their sense of hearing, hearing the, the predator come in. Most birds, with a few notable exceptions, Do not have a sense of smell that's as developed as say mammals, you know, our, our dogs and cats, coyotes, foxes, all those animals that really depend on their sense of smell for, for finding food and survival. That's not an adaptation we see as often in, in the avian world. So they have very uh, acute hearing. Many birds have very good eyesight and, and those are the things they're going to be using to be around, uh, aware of what's around them. And of course, animals that flock, um, whether it's fish in schools or birds and flocks that, that are herds of mammals, really depend on each other for, for survival. So if one duck gets startled and takes off, all the other ducks around it are going to do the same. And they may not individually be aware of why the flock is startled, but they're taking that cue from one of their neighbors and following along. And you see that with herding and flocking and schooling animals across the animal kingdom of uh, that, that type of behavior where it's a, you know we've been talking a lot about crowdsourcing today and I, I think it's a kind of a natural or biological crowdsourcing where one animal in the flock or the herd gets startled and they all behave that way. That's
0: great. Oh, I'm really relishing this. Well, uh, just to close, any events, Orange County Park events, before we leave?
1: Yeah, you know, we we have all kinds of different things going on. Um, It's a little slower because of the the holidays and, and recognizing that... Most folks are going to be with their families, but if you're looking to get out, I am doing a hike for the public at Upper Newport Bay, New Year's Day, you know, if you want to walk off some of those those calories from the week before, just a simple family-friendly interpretive walk to get around the bay, stretch out and and see what's around. We do regular bird surveys at the bay. Um, We have beginner's bird class coming up in January and lots of our other parks have amazing classes and programs as well. So my recommendation is go to ocparks.com, look at the calendar and see what's going on and you'll be able to find something really fun to do with your family for sure.
0: For New Year's Day, what time are you on that hike? (sighs)
1: That's a great question, Um, late morning. Well,
0: I thank you for all the extra time I got with all my little wide-eyed questions. This was really a delight, Nathan. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, Claudia.
0: My guest was Nathan Taxel. He's a resource specialist at Orange County Parks and, as I've said and repeat, as you heard, an interpreter extraordinaire at the Upper Newport Bay Nature Preserve. Happy New Year, Nathan.
1: Thank you so much. Happy New Year to you as well
0: girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes snowflakes stay on money, the winters had we'll spring. be right back with Linda Beale co-founder of, of the Amy Beal Foundation she has some very personable reflections when about the, the recently passed the Archbishop Desmond Tutu we'll be right back in a short one. I simply remember my favorite thing. that I don't feel so bad. I don't feel so bad. Welcome back to the show. My second guest, it's such an honor to bring her back, is Linda Beal. And I want to um, first, I want to just give her my condolences and I'm going to introduce her now. She previously appeared... On this program, and when the the irrepressible the inestimable Nelson Mandela had passed this time around. We're going to pay tribute to the late Archbishop Desmond Tujou, whom the family came to know over the very important work that they did, following Linda and Peter Beale's daughter Amy's death in nineteen ninety four and working through their grief around the void of their daughter being killed by those who stood to benefit from her activism, Linda and Peter Beale understood that something even larger, that something being South Africa's budding democratic project underway in 1993, was where they should focus their energy and thereby redeem something from their personal catastrophe. In 2008, Linda Received the highest honor given to a non-South African, the Companions of Or Tambo, an award named for Oliver Tambo. Some people may remember him as a stellar activist, South Africa's leader in exile for many years. Linda founding and directing the Amy Beale Foundation, attending to basic rights amidst a chronically underserved population in South Africa. In other works, now she's in, she's been a consultant as a film about Amy navigates the. Uh, pandemic conditions that they're putting together. I'll be watching for that. The eventual release of the, it'll be, I think it may or may, maybe it's a title in, in progress, but it's the year of the great storm. So folks can find out more by reading Stephen Gish's book entitled Amy Beale's Last Home, A Bright Life, A Tragic Death and a Journey of Reconciliation in South Africa. So we're catching Linda live with family on the road in Charleston, South Carolina. Welcome
2: back to Ask a Leader, Linda Beale. Well, thank you. (laughs) Listening to that introduction, and I'm smiling. And it's it's kind of strange because, of course, the loss of Desmond Tutu is, is the world's loss. I I I have to say that, you know the tributes are pouring in and my my social uh emails and facebooks and everything are just blowing out but I somehow have a smile on my face because he represented real humanity um it wasn't words it was the way he looked the way he twinkled the way he he was he was a power pack, and I just felt the energy. He was um, a caring soul that really lived the life that he was hoping people can, could live, and, and the example of it. Um, so do Amy's see? death was yes. complicated, so yes. you know, meeting him and everything came through uh, as a very positive, uh, uh, in a way, it was a gift Amy gave me.
0: Yes, I understand that from all that I've gotten to know with your work, and uh, a little bit part with some of the amazing kinds of cottage industries that you've built and and handed over to other local leadership now. So maybe, maybe Lenny could just talk maybe maybe about your first encounters. There must be something that sort of leapt out at you because you said it was a complicated time. You're in grief. You're in shock, and here is this sort of preeminent religious and political. He's both. He's And he's, he re, remains so the rest of his life. But a, 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 a standout religious and political figure. A, a, a,
2: what you recall from those first encounters? Well, you know, Amy really did not know him. She knew Mandela and his, his people and, and worked with the new Constitution and human rights. But she was at Stanford from 1985 to 1989 with her emphasis on sub-Saharan Africa and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it was the middle of apartheid and activism on campuses, divestiture and all that. But she called home when any, anything really exciting happened. And one afternoon she calls home and she's breathless. And she says, Mom, I just this man. I just met this man, Desmond Tutu. It was, it was just amazing. She went to his lecture, Eric's talk or however it was presented. I'm not sure, but I'll never forget that, the day she died. I mean, the when we heard that, and I think I heard a voice say, "I met this man." Little did I know um, that I would meet that man, and he he would I would respond the same way. So I do think that Amy did give me a gift to meet many people that I wouldn't meet, but not just to meet them, but to actually um, have them as a mentor or to have them find the best in me, in in some ways, you know? I couldn't let people down, I guess, and in so doing, um, I tried to emulate him in some ways. I was giving a talk up in Palo Alto to a church group, and uh, someone had written this um, introduction for me, and I'm looking at it, and I happened to peek at it. My daughter Molly had sort of helped write it, and if I had gotten that introduction, standing up, I would have cried. But you know, I read that introduction and I thought to myself, "Now what? What would Desmond Tutu? Do? He would get up with a smile and a sense of humor and make people laugh." And so I, I just got up there and I thought, "Oh, this lady is crazy." And I'm like, "No, I, I, I really felt that so much of his energy was, was about." was about lifting spirits, whether, you know, it be in his church pulpit fighting against apartheid, or if it was on a street saying hello to somebody. His love of his family, his love of his people, he just, it, it just poured out of him. And I, I, I just really thought of him as the person I would like to be. And I still feel that way, and he, he's that way to thousands, millions of people around the world, I'm sure. But he used to come up... And and uh, I, I met him with a friend, a journalist. We made friends with a lot of the South African journalists. And she said, um, "You know, I friend of Desmond Tutu. Would you like to go to meet him?" And I'm like really? And my daughter, Molly, was with me on that visit, and another, the next one, it was actually the second visit I went without the family, and Molly Mm -hmm. met me, and we drove into Bishop's Court, he was still the Archbishop in Cape Town, this fancy building and all that, and there he stood in his bright pink vestment, not as tall as my daughter, (laughs) or me, really. And it just, it was like a ray, a ray of light, and he invited us in. We met his wife. He said, he looked at us. He held our hands. He cared. But then we started talking. And I don't know how much time he gave us. And I know how busy he is. And it was just like my daughter, Molly, said, I've listened to
0: Yes. OK, there you are. So you were there that time by yourself that second t- the that next time you were talking about. I'm sorry.
2: Well, both times uh, I, we made the family trip, which was you know, documentaries made about it and all that. But then I quit my job and I started going because my husband could. Basically, we had an opportunity to meet him, and I was there by myself. But then my girls came and met me at several other times, so we got to talk to him and get got to know him. And uh, before my husband was really able to meet him, and he uh, became a, a friend. He pinched my cheek and, you know, just be, like, just joyful around us. And we were so happy, and I couldn't wait for my husband to meet us because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established, and he was the chairman, and we had to deal with that process because although the young young men were convicted and in prison of her murder, they were also allowed to apply for amnesty because they could prove it was if they could prove it was a political crime and my husband and i were able to talk to desmond tutu to ask him what how can we help south africa how can we help heal a nation that has gone through what it has in the past years and so he said you know just tell them about amy and speak from your heart So after all the formal parts of the Truth and Reconciliation Amnesty hearing, we had a chance to speak. And I think it was Peter's opportunity to really talk about his daughter, and I could say what Amy was about. And you know those four young men who were very afraid to look at us. They wouldn't look us in the eye even, and they turned around, and they looked at us, and they saw us not as some propaganda, but as real people. And it, it just broke barriers. And they they asked for forgiveness. They didn't have to in order to get amnesty, but they did. So that that was, I think, the, the big moment of understanding how we could be maybe maybe a little bit of a symbol of social justice and reconciliation. And if it weren't for Desmond Tutu, I think we were trying to figure it out. But the simplicity of his statement gave us the freedom in our hearts to say what we needed to say.
0: That is so profound. I don't think anything I can say is is just it's going to be a, a shortcoming. So that's, I guess, Linda Beal, what spirituality is, is giving everybody the kind of necessary ballast amidst a challenge to to do something without any kind of a manual to some in very untested waters. There there hadn't been any kind of reconciliation like that. You didn't know what grieving your daughter, Amy, was going to be like. And so uh, what a, what a marvel. And so I really do want to give my condolences to you for, uh, your loss in, I mean, I imagine that you had been able to remain in contact with Archbishop, the, or the Arch is what we hear. You were able to keep yes. in touch with him over the years. Oh,
2: yes. We did many things with him, both in the U.S. and South Africa. Uh, he came and supported projects, and I got to interview him once. He was getting an award in, in uh, Washington, D.C., from Search for a Common Ground. And, you know, he's he's fought bad health for a long time okay and so traveling you know he traveled all the time he would never know it but you know he said he couldn't come to the states then and receive the award and so they asked me well would you go interview him in person and i just love that i mean it was okay i get to interview the arts you know and so we did things like that but when my husband died And people in South Africa were following the fact that Peter had colon cancer and he wasn't well. And the archbishop and his wife, Leah, who were just amazing, would send a fax. And I'd tell my husband in the hospital, I said, you know, you just got a fax from Desmond Tutu. Aren't you excited? And he'd say, oh, that's so nice. And actually, shortly after he died, I went back home and there in front of the door was a bouquet of south african protea the flowers Ooh, of south africa that's... i don't know how how they even knew he died i mean i guess the media knew but um it was like they took the time out of their life and all the issues they deal with and they are an amazing couple by the way um i got to go to their 60th wedding anniversary yes. in cape town and uh, what a beautiful their love is I know the family. I, I feel that, you know, they're both very sad, like we all are, but they probably have been working on this. Well, I know they have working on this. Uh, his funeral and, and all the various aspects of it, and I know they must be exhausted and tired, but they've been working on it for six years or something. I was listening to Cape Town Radio yesterday when uh, when they were talking about his formal service in, in Cape Town on Saturday. So not everybody today around the world knows him, but I would say he's one of the most revered, uh, like the Dalai Lama, and they were close, leaders, the spiritual, uh, humanitarian, um, crossing boundaries, um, and and really he talked about what he called, and others call Ubuntu, Ubuntu being... Um, we are all related. We live, a man, no man is an island. It's it's about, as he said, generosity of spirit. And those are lessons that we really need to remember and relearn or start learning today. Linda, on that
0: note, I know you have more to tell us. I want to thank you for taking time with celebrating the holidays and bring the new year with your your near and dear extended family where you are traveling right now thank you i want to um i i'm so privileged to to get to know you over the years and i wish you every success in building more kinds of Creations of the, the more books and the film that's up and coming when the, finally the COVID is going to allow <laughs> all of that production to come together. My condolences and my wish for you a very happy, happy 2022, Linda Beale.
2: Yeah, I wish to you and your listeners.
0: Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. My guest was Linda Beale, with the, she's the co founder of the Amy Beale Foundation and making a standout example of herself. So I'm just going to say that's my rap. This is Nikki Sisolela, the the anthem that was played by all the jazz greats in this particular recording, Mary Makeba, Hugh Masakela, and so many, I think. So that's my rap. This is the last show of 2021. I'm going to uh warn everybody, my designs for 2022 will be about putting all the necessary Indicators on your radar about the tatters in which our republic is. If it sounds like I'm going a bit scold, it's because esteemed contributors like UCI Professor Rick hassen David Domke, Common Power Co leader, and so many more are pretty rattled. I'll temper things from time to time with lovely things, but I want to keep my sights honing in on the state of our very fragile republic. And listeners, all you, uh, Happy New Year. The sweet spot of each of these productions is you listening. Thanks for your support and listening. And let me know. C shambot kuci.org. Tell me what you're thinking throughout next year. Let's make our relationship a little more symmetrical. All right, everybody. Happy New Year to all.